0: double-checking and make sure that there wasn't another song I was missing. So, <laughs> good. I never know with this crew. Hey, if you are age 12 and under, you may head back to Camp Pointway. They've prepared a lesson back there for you, and uh, teachers are back there at the back just looking forward to having you head back there. So, <sighs> Yeah, you're not the only one that talks for a living, Joe, but I mean, it's good. They took it out of you. That's all right. Well, rest up. you got a little bit of time before you get to the next song. So, it's all good. Well, if you um, have been with us, you know that we're kind of like in-between series. Well, guess what? We're going to embark on another series. And so, um, I like those. Um, it's always interesting, always interesting to me at least, how God lays something on your heart and you, you can't get away from it. Because to be honest, this is, not a, this is not one of these series I would have picked. All I'm right, just, just going to put that right out there right now, but I couldn't get away from it. Even when I was in Maine, God laid it on my heart, and I'm like, Lord, really? Are you sure you want us to do this right now? Because it doesn't make sense to me personally, it didn't. But God's laid it on my heart, and again, as I've studied, I'm actually kind of seeing why God did that. But we are going to start on the book of Esther. Right, Some of you, I know, are probably going to have to look in your, the table of contents and say, where the heck is Esther in my Bible? Because I haven't read that in a long time. Um, it's one of those books that we don't read often. When I say Esther, what do you think? What's your first thought? What comes to mind when I say the, the book of Esther? Ah, yes, or Queen, yes, as well. Hey, for you that are aghast, and you may not know this, uh, Paul's really good at, G's really good about asking rhetorical questions. I am not. So, when I ask a question, I want an answer and I'll wait for it because, really, to be honest, I need the help. So, you guys can help me along. But, right? So, there's that famous quote, right? For such a time as this, we see it all the time. That's like the one thing that, that kind of stands out in Esther. Do you know that there are 10 chapters written in the book of Esther? 10 chapters. And so if you try to summarize that all in just that one little catchy phrase, you miss a lot. There is a lot there. In fact, the book of Esther is like a lot of the books, uh, like Job, uh, Jonah, it's not really all about the person as much as it is about God, right? The Old Testament just rings over and over again, God, God and his faithfulness, God watching over the nation of Israel who God is, right? Esther really plays a very small role in the book of Esther. In fact, I, if I was naming it, again, and God didn't ask me to name the books of the Bible, and it's probably a good thing, but I would have called it maybe Mordecai. Mordecai to me seems you know, more prevalent and, and probably more spiritually minded than Esther. But again, God didn't ask me that. And, um, but there's a lot of question with Esther, Do you know that uh, the church founders really had to wrestle with the book of Esther, whether it should be included in our Bibles or not? Esther's unique. It's a unique book. It doesn't mention directly God, not once. Now, you'd have to be pretty blind not to see God throughout the book of Esther, but it's not mentioned. There's no mention of the law, the law of Moses. There's no mention of worship, per se. A lot of the key things that the scholars used to look at to say whether it should make the the canon or not, whether it should be included in our Bibles. But, in their wisdom, and thankfully so, it is included. And it's a great story in our Bibles. And it is a story. It's a narrative. It's a a telling of history. And so it's a little unique in that way as we we work through it, because we're going to go through it as a storytelling-type affair. But through that as God always does, there's nuggets in there, and there's a lot going on. I'm going to give you a lot of background this morning because, again, it really sets up the whole story of Esther. So bear with me as a context, but you know me. I love context because it helps us understand not only what's going on, but what's happening and how God's working through this process. So the book of Esther is written um, for about a 10-year span. It's a short span, of history. You know, for, for history's sake, that's a, a pretty narrow window. But it's that time when Israel is still in exile. It's that time when they are being punished for their getting away from God. They're um, drifting from their moorings. Now, some of the exiles have been allowed to go back, and there's that, that other character that I really do like, Nehemiah, Right and, and Ezra, and they're, they're back in Jerusalem, they're starting to build. But many of the Jews still remained. Back fact, the Jews never did leave under the Gentile rule. Now, it's not Babylon at this point, but it's the Persians and the Medes. Again, the two kingdoms that came together to defeat the Babylonians. And that's before they go and try to attack the Greeks. So it's that little narrow window of time that we're going to be looking at as we look at this story uh, through the book of Esther. So there's a lot of history going on, but it's, it's a time still that's pretty dark as far as the nation of Israel, or it's, it's at best a time of transition. Right? But Esther doesn't leave. She stays there um, under the Persian rule, and she's going to end up becoming the queen. Joe mentioned it. Spoiler alert. No, it's not spoiler alert. If you come back next week, you'll find that out in chapter 2. But there's another queen that's there before Esther, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, how that comes about and what's going on, not only with the nation of Israel, but more importantly, what's going on in the surrounding area. I love the fact that this morning worked out well where both PJ and Joe mentioned what's going on in Afghanistan and how it affects our country, but also to to focus on what's going on there and also in Haiti and, and other parts of our world. We can be guilty of it in America here that we kind of get centralized and we kind of get focused and just only see what's happening to us and that we're part of a bigger world and we're part of a lot more that's going on and just because we don't see it doesn't mean that God's still not at work. And I'm trusting that God's at work over there in Afghanistan as well. And so, as mentioned, we do need to pray. But guess what? There was, God was still at work during this time as well. And we'll see that, how he brings things about. Even though he's not mentioned directly, God's still at work. All right, that's enough for today to get you started. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 120 provinces, stretched from his royal India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the province were present. Again, good historical background, just kind of gives you a place. And again, it's great when history lines up with the Bible, right? The Bible's truth, and history kind of reaffirms it, but this has been proven, the time period. They have records that go back to this period in time. And Xerxes was a real king, and he was really part of that land. I also failed to mention some scholars struggle with the book of Esther because they, they don't know how to interpret it. And they try to interpret it, they try to interpret it as prophecy They kind of doesn't fit. If they try to allegorize it, that, that doesn't fit. If they try to spiritualize it, that doesn't fit. I'm a simple guy, and most scholars, conservative scholars agree, just interpret it as history and just for what it says. So history bears that out here. And again, it talks about the land, India to Kush. This is a huge area. This is the power of the day. This is the one that's ruling. And again, they're Gentiles. They're nowhere near God or Judaism. There's no practicing. They are deeply away from God. But as we know, God uses both the believer and the unbeliever to accomplish his will. Interesting enough, uh, Susa is an important place. It's kind of the capital. It's in the center of the, the reign of Persia and Mede at this time. Uh, the third year would have been kind of the prime time for this king, right? He's kind of transitioned from his dad, and he's taken over, and things have settled, and it, he's kind of stepped into his own. And he holds this great banquet, right? Brings in all of his officials. In fact, when we read history, he did this in order to kind of set himself up, because he's getting ready to attack one more big foe. Anyone want to know what that is? You know, Who else is out there that, that they want to try to expand to? Who's a history nut? Come on. Who comes after the Persians and the Medes? Uh, Romans, but a little bit later on. the Romans aren't there yet. Greeks. Someone said it. I heard some. Huh? The Greeks. Yeah, the Greeks. Told you, I don't ask rhetorical question because I need that help. But the Romans are right afterwards. But, but he's going to do that. And again, we know from history that he loses that battle. But at this point, he's gathering all his folks in. He's, he's pulling in all the, the leaders. And he's pulling them in to get ready for this next battle. Again, like I said, he's in his third year. Things are well. He's established. He's securely has the throne. And now he's going to increase his, his area. And so he brings in some food, right? We all love food, right? There's two things going on today. We're not only having a baptism, but we're having some food to go along with it. So baptism is a little more important. But again, food brings us together, right? Same thing there. And so he's bringing his leaders, and he's kind of putting on a show too. Kings were known for that day. The more and more that you can lavish on and show how well you're doing, putting on a show. And so that's all part of this. In fact, in verse 4, we see how long this goes on. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had its hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver, on a mosaic pavement of poromar marble, jade, pearl, and other costly stones. Right, 180 days, a six months worth of time, he puts on display. And again. The beginning of this, right, it's the nobles. He's, he's trying to impress those in his kingdom, right? Kings are no dummies, right? You need support. You need men around you. And so if you can impress them and you can make it look like you're doing well, then people will follow you. I'll never forget when I started in the, the business world a little bit and I got a job selling adhesives. I know some of you have laughed at that, that I used to sell glue um, but I did. I used to sell chemicals. And I went through Dale Carnegie class. And one of the things in Dale Carnegie class was if you dress for success, you'll be successful. And that used to be the standard. And you know, Dale Carnegie would teach how to speak in front of other people, but also how to dress and how to do that. And so you had the, the, the brand-new suit, the shine shoes. You drove newer cars, and you were extravagant. When you took people out and you wanted them to sign a contract, you would spend some money on them. You you might give them ball tickets. You might give them something to to kind of help the process, right? Couldn't help me, but remind me back to those days because I would think, man, why can't you just sell them a product that they're going to like and they'll buy it and and you go on, right? That would be easy. But no, there was that, we'd call it smooching a little bit. We'd smooch them. So King is doing the same thing here. And you can see at the end of it, again, the food comes in, the banquet and it lasted for seven days. After seven days of food and being lavished on, you'd have the support, right, most likely. You'd have those people at that point, they'd be pretty enamored with you. They'd want to be like you. Interesting, even some of the details, right? You see here, the white and the blue linen, again, representing the two kingdoms forget which is which, Persia or the, the Medes, but those were part of the, the symbols for those countries. Silver, milk, marble. History records of stones, right? Sparing no expense. History records, though, that even though the kingdom looked really good as far as the king himself and his courts, the people were under heavy toil. A lot of it was built on the backs of hard labor or slaves that they had taken when they conquered the land. So you had this disparity, but at least at this moment, all looks good, and you've got this big party, you've invited everybody in, and in that day, what you needed for a good party comes in verse 7. It says, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. The king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. All right? And I said, to have a good party, you need a lot of wine. Well, again, this is an extravagant amount of wine. This is in the, obviously in the secular world. And so more wine, the more party. And the king even took off the restrictions. Because it used to be people would only drink if the king drank, Right? They would only raise their glass if he raised his glass. And so he could control most situations. Again, back to my business world, that used to be part of it as well. You you would take people out for drinks and you would control. You'd keep yourself in control, but you didn't care if they got a little bit tipsy. Sadly. Again, different time. But the king is no different here. He's using that same formula, right? I've also been around enough, and sadly, in my drinking days that I noticed that when it's free, you tend to drink more, right? When it's free, you're not paying for it, you know, you're willing to, to let things go. And so King purposely does this. Again, he breaks his own custom, but he's allowing them to serve abundantly to, to have a great bash. And again, this isn't going on for just one party. This is a seven-day banquet. This is an ongoing thing, free wine. So you can imagine where things have come to at this point right? Free wine, free food, party atmosphere. It's gotten probably pretty wild at this point. But the king's feeling pretty good. He's got the people around him. Things are going well. A little side note here. We're going to introduce another character here who's important to the beginning of this, but the queen, Vashti, who gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Just a little side note here, right? We talked about the seven-day banquet and all the details, and yet the women are having one, and what do you see there? Simple, bottom line, right? There's not much there. It's for the women, and it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's plain. There's not much elaboration. We don't know any real details. We don't even know how long it was. just as a banquet. It may have been a one-day banquet. Contrast right? To make a point. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits, a.k.a. drunk, I'll just put it in there. I mean, uh, high spirits is just a nice way of saying it, but really, he's inebriated. He's drunk from this point. From the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Mehuman, Bitha, Harbona, Bigatha, Abaga, Zephtar, and Chaarx. If anyone else can pronounce these better than me, I am more than happy to let you do that. So that's my best guess at it. Verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Right? So again, the scene, there's seven days going on, they're partying, he's drunk, he's, he's, he's been partying it up, and he's, he has this great idea, hey, Get our queen in here. Have her come in, right? Now, if you flip the tables a little bit, if you're that queen, would you want to go to a party where they've been drinking for seven days and they've been partying it up? Uh, again, most likely there's a lot of men around who are drunk. Would that be the place you'd want to go and be put on display? No. i I'm watching. I love it. All you women are going, uh-uh, no way. I would be with you. I'm not sure that I wanted to step into that situation, right? Interestingly enough here, they name the eunuchs. Again, that just gives us a little glimpse into the culture. Quite often, the kings would would have several of these um, men that were castrated in order to serve around the women, but part of it was their insecurity because they didn't want their wives to be taken off or their concubines. Also, there would be an uprising with kids. There would be responsibilities. Uh, Chance These would be his leaders, and so they would castrate the men that would be serving around the women, and these would be his leaders. And many of these held high positions. But again, that's just part of the the culture of that and trying to hold on to the crown. But he's got this beautiful queen, and he wants to bring her out and put her on display. So he sends for her. Verse 12, but she, like you women, are like, I don't think so. It says, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vesha refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. Right? We have an action and we have a response. Right? She is commanded to come. She refuses. He's mad. He's furious. It says he burned with anger. Again, that's a, a deep. It just it's He's seething. He can't believe that she's not coming. Interesting enough, I read a a bunch of commentaries on this this week, because everyone wants to know the question, why did she decide not to come? Maybe just not because of the public embarrassment, but there is a long list, if you want to go look it up, of reasons that people have thought maybe why she didn't want to do it. One, she was worried about her safety, to two, that he had asked her to come wearing just her crown and nothing else. Uh, The other is, you know, because... She was pregnant. She didn't want to come. Again, there is a whole slew. If you want to throw one more opinion in there, why she didn't come, you can. But that's all it is. It's an opinion. So I'm not going to give you an exact reason because Scripture doesn't say it. The writer didn't think it was important. And so there we have it. That's, we just know that she refuses. But the king's response is going to change the direction. It's, a, it's an important part. It's an important piece Because again, this is going to affect not only the kingdom right now that's going on, but it's going to affect Esther when she comes in. Not only gives her an opportunity, but it's going to be that contrast. So we see that here. And so he's angry, he's mad, he's furious, he can't believe that she's not coming. And we have his response here. And so someone must have talked to him a little bit, because verse 13 says, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and who were closest to the king Kirina, Shimra Amatha Tarsius Mers Marcina Melchum and the seven nobles of the Persian Media who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom right so he at least came down one notch he didn't just have her head cut off or just do away with her at that point he kind of says, all right, well, let's find out if we can come up with a, a law, alright let's, let's change the rules of the game. There's got to be something that fits this situation. Does this sound vaguely familiar to some things that we see going on in our world today, all right? I mean, I, I think of our own country. We have more than enough laws, but yet they're never tired of trying to add one more law or to change a law because they didn't like the way one of the other ones read Well, here they're going to invent a a new law. They already have a system in place, but it doesn't fit this circumstance, so the king's upset, so we've got to do something. So we're going to bring in some smart guys, and we're going to figure out some way to handle this situation. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me, when I'm angry, especially to the point where I'm I'm, I'm blowing my top, I'm not at my best in decision-making. Right? Anybody else that way? All right, good. I thought I was all alone there for a moment. The rest of you got to work on your lying. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. But right, we don't, we don't think well. We don't, we don't reason well. And so he does at least one right thing. He, he calls in some other people. But remember the, the back scene, right? He just spent 180 days with his military, his nobles. He's thrown all this party. Do you think those seven men are going to really give him the best of advice? Or are they going to say what the king wants to hear? Who wouldn't be tempted, right? Certainly, you don't want to be out with the king, and the king's pretty volatile right now, and so your answer's probably not going to be the best. Again, you may not be directly affected, but you don't want the king, if you've got his ear, you're on the inner circle, you don't want to upset him, right? whole leadership principle about surrounding yourself with good men and godly men and And people with that certainly applies. Again, these aren't godly men, but they are wise. But yet, they're compromised by the situation. Verse 15. Again, like I said, they had laws. According to law, what must be done to the queen? She's not obeyed the command of the king that the eunuchs have taken to her, right? Disobedience, right? Told her to do something. She didn't do it. No, it's just not anybody. This is the queen, and she's beautiful, and I've loved her, and I've you know, doted on her, but yet the one thing I've asked, she's refused. And so we've got we to gotta come up with a law. Verse 16. Then Mimica replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, queen has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples, all the provinces, provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise her husbands and say, "King Xerxes commanded Queen Bastia, and he to be brought to him, but she would not come." This very day, the Persian and the Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end. Of the disrespect and discord. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't it kind of interesting how, how the reasoning here goes, right? Well, if the queen stands up to the king and doesn't do what I said, then our wives are not going to do the same thing, and we can't have that. Right? Again, we looked at it, right? It was pretty an unreasonable request. Again, we unfortunately we don't know the exact reason, but whatever it was, we're gonna assume it was a good reason to not do it. But yet, the, the, the reason that we got to do something is because now this could affect the whole country. Right? And again, a little cultural. During that time, women were, were, were down on a different level than men. Men had the rule and, and women were subservient to the point of right there with slaves at times. They had to do what their husband said. There wasn't usually a lot of room for wiggle there. But there was this fear. There was this fear that everyone was going to do the same thing. And so these men protecting themselves said, hey, you know, we've we got to bring this under control. And so he like said, there's no end. This is just going to go on. This is not just a one-time thing. This could become a problem, a huge problem. So here's their idea. Here's their, their way out or their, their way of figuring it. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. And let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Bashia is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Again, this is a sentence to a life of poverty, right? To go from the queen all the way down to nobody, that's a, that's a pretty harsh treatment. It's a special law, again, showing the outcome. If you, Again, this is how people would read that. Well, if I don't do what the king says, then I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be kicked out. Again, the queens in that day had it pretty good. Again, we don't know that here exactly from the scriptures, but we do know that they, they were treated really well. They would have a, a crowd of them. There's reference to all the access that they would have the beauty products, the food, they were well taken care of. We actually get a little bit more of that in Esther because you don't just switch queens overnight. There's a process. They had a process for doing that. A testing period. But, you know, it's interesting. We're not going to just get someone like her. Even though she was very beautiful and she was a strong woman, we want something even better, right? We're going we're to go for something even better. That searching, that endless search. And so it's a consequence. And so they make this proclamation. They make this new law in order to get out of this. Verse 20, Then when the king's edict was proclaimed throughout the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the great. Right? From the least to the greatest, right? The hope was that, hey, if this happens with the queen, then all the women will fall in line. They'll all do the same thing. I know enough about women that that's not always the case, right? They're all individuals. Our wives are unique, right? A lot of them are great leaders among their own right. But again, that's what's going on in this time, and that was the hope of doing this. All right, as we round out this chapter here, the last two verses, again, the repercussions or the result of what's taken place. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mecham proposed. He sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. A couple of things that are kind of interesting here. the talks about the dispatches sending out. The, the Persians actually were known for their communication. They were actually known that they were really good at sending messengers out. They would pick the fastest of the fast and the most reliable men, and they were good at getting the word out. Now, I wasn't texting or you. some say it's as have today or instant message, but again, it was pretty good for that, that day. Some say it's as good as our mail system is today as far as getting to places. I'm not sure if that's saying much in today's context, but no, sorry, you that deliver the mail, I apologize now, no but they were good at getting the word out because they wanted it out quick, right? Because some time has taken place here, and the longer this goes, the more the fear is, right? The fear is driving, and the king's anger is driving the motives for changing the law. And so he gets it out there quickly, all the ends. Again, it's a vast territory, but he's getting it out there. But look how he even changes the law a little bit. It's interesting. It says, every man should be ruler of his own household. Right? Well, that's not exactly how that first read, right? It was just more about the king and the queen and their relationship. But now it's going to everybody, and it should be ruler of his own household. And again, giving more authority to the man. This would not be a great passage for, for women's rights by any means. Right? This is a step backwards. They even have less than they already had. And then as an add-on or a, an addendum, Right? We see that quite often, right? Our, our Congress does that often. They'll add things to right, their, their wish list. Well, they throw in this little tidbit here, and it's interesting, but it says, using his native tongue. Uses the opportunity. King is no dummy. He's using the opportunity to, to change something that's been going on. Because what also was happening in households, wasn't uncommon for, for mixed marriages, but mom, because she taught the kids, especially when they were young, she would teach them in their own language. Makes sense, you know, it makes it easier to communicate. And quite often, for the sake of the family, it was just easier for the dad to use whatever mom used for her native tongue. But in a way to control, which is wrapped in this, again, this could almost seem like a good law in some ways, but underneath there's an undercurrent. It's saying, no, no, we, we don't want the women teaching the children, because they are a man, we want them to conform to us. The trade language was Aramaic at the time, and so they kind of, no, you can't teach them in their own native. You've got to teach them whatever dad speaks, right? It's got to be his way. Again, giving him more control, more power. So that is the backdrop. That is all the the laying out of all the the scripture to get to actually when we see Esther next week in chapter 2. Is God still in control? Yeah. Even though God's not mentioned, even though we have a king, even though we we see some corruption, is God still in control? Yeah. God's still in control of the situation. He knows what's going on. And again, it's part of the preparation for what's yet to come. Right? Because even though many have started exile, many Jews are not there. There are still Jews there, and God still cares about those people. God still is sovereignly controlled and cares about his people. Does God still care about his people today? Yeah. yeah. Does God still care about those believers in Afghanistan? Talk about bringing something to real to life. Absolutely. And we sang that song, and we pray what God prays, right? Align ourselves with God. And we need to care about those folks as well. And so it's a great reminder. It was timely, and again, I couldn't have lined it up if I wanted to, but I believe that's part of what God's been speaking. And we'll see as the weeks go how God uses the passage in Esther. Bow with me, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word that it's so alive and real today, Lord, and how it can impact us. Lord, help us not to fall into the, the traps of old, Lord, that we learn from the history, the history in our Bibles, Lord. Lord, as we spend not only this morning, but the next couple of weeks studying the book of Esther, Lord, may you speak to us, may you help us to glean from it. May it dig down deep to our hearts, Lord. And Lord, not, uh, let us not forget that you are in control and you care about us and you love us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.